as bar heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this wonderful privilege to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, faith that you've given us. For all of eternity, Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for sanctifying us each and every day. Thank you for making the path clear, though it's narrow. It is very clear. As long as we stay the, stay the course and remain true to your scriptures, Father, what a wonderful blessing this is. What a magnificent walk it's turned out to be. Father, we pray for those that are still struggling, uh, those in this congregation even that are sick or ill in some way, shape, or form. And we just pray for their recovery in your time, of course, by your will, of course. We pray also for those that are so very lost, so much so that they don't even realize possibly their own depravity in whatever way we might bring them to truth, shine light in their lives through our example, through scripture, through sharing. Your will be done. What a privilege that is, Father, to do. We're so very grateful for the opportunity. We just pray for each and every divine appointment that it goes according to your will. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, why are the apostles so encouraging? That has been the big question now for 67 parts plus, if you include all the little uh, side notes and uh, offshoot lessons, etc. Why are they so encouraging? If you haven't figured it out by now, um, I'm not sure what to say. Um, fundamentally, they're just, they were regular people. There was nothing uh, incredibly extraordinary about them other than what God gave them that made them extraordinary, which is by His grace alone, through faith. And that is and should be exceptionally encouraging for all of us. So by grace they were prepared has been the theme. Uh, to continue up, we're almost done, it seems. Um, we began class on Thursday referencing the, what I called in jest, spiritual F-bomb which, of course, I'm being silly, but the point was this. There is an inevitable truth, that, that is that the flesh is forever implacable. If you feed it like a little animal, it just wants more. It grows bigger and stronger in your, in your life, so to speak. And if you've been around long enough, you know that it gets worse over the years. I know mine is. It's awful. It just keeps getting worse and worse. It's falling apart, for starters, my body. But the flesh um, that is intrinsically intertwined with said body, it's just getting worse. Um, it grasps on to pretty much everything it can that builds itself up. 
and it's never satisfied. So you have to realize that about yourself and that you still have a flesh and that it's forever implacable. It can't be satisfied. If you feed it, it wants more. If you, and the way you feed flesh is you sin, right? You give in to temptation. If you feed it, it just wants more. It wants more sin in your life. So it's never satisfied. It's always or forever implacable. It breeds malcontent. That's the, the end game of feeding the flesh is malcontent. But it does breed malcontent by never being satisfied with the grace of God. Again, the spiritual F-bomb is familiarity. That's that word that has come up year over year from this pulpit, familiarity. We all do it. We all get exceptionally familiar. You know, even I was joking with you earlier, like, you know, everybody's like, come on, man, what's going on? Are you kind of like, eh, because you're familiar? I don't know. Is it possible that you're kind of just, eh, because, you know, it's just another Sunday and it's not sunny out. You know, it's not sunny out, and I'm so familiar with good weather, and, you know, this is getting ridiculous. Is that the problem? (laughs) No, I mean, that's you being familiar. Is that not fair? I don't know. Are you familiar with God's grace so that you, I don't know, stayed up too late last night, and you looked for something for the flesh to feed on? I don't know, maybe late-night reruns of Benny Hill or something? (laughs) Or Randy. Right? I don't know. Not that I knew that this was in the show or anything. I don't know. What, what we, I don't know. Familiarity is horrible. If you get familiar with the grace in your life, that's, the, that's literally like signing a check over to the kingdom of darkness. Because now it has control and it can cash in on you anytime it wants. Because you're familiar. You're implacable. You can't be satisfied. What a brat. We're a bunch of brats. So the F-bomb really is familiarity. In light of this, we have a lot to think about. For example, familiarity's plague. Life is a miracle that we are way too familiar with. You're alive. You're breathing. That's a miracle. You're saved. Most, as far as I know, all of you, I hope. That's a miracle. It's a miracle. We take things for granted, losing sight of the fact that life abounds all around us. And we saw this on Thursday. For example, when's the last time you read the likes of 1 Peter 3.18? I'll give it to you in a moment. And really took the time to step back and be blown away by it. When's the last time you were blown away by even one verse in the Bible? And why wouldn't you be every single time? Why wouldn't you be increasingly so? Why does it decrease? Why is it the more we read something, the more familiar we get with it, the less impact it tends to have? Unless the Holy Spirit snaps us in the forehead and says, wake up. This is the precious bread of life. You're reading it. It's what sustains you. When's the last time you were blown away by it? Instead of a steak at Capitol Grill or something like that. Do you know what I'm getting at? Or, or a bottle of wine. You know, oh, this is, you know, you're like doing this number when's the last time you, you did that with, with the Word of God? Seriously. When's the last time you had such discerning taste for Holy Scripture, for the bread of life? Most of you really do spend more time with your drink and spending more time 
relishing things that really are feeding the flesh. For reference sake, again, when's the last time you let something like this just blow your mind? 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died for sins once for all. Mind-blowing. The just for the unjust. More so, so that he might bring us to God. Booyah! I'm serious. Why is that not mind-blowing? Think about that. You were way over there. Impossible for you to come to God except through Christ. So Christ became man for you. Why does that not blow you away? Having put to death the flesh, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. How about that? That is mind-blowing. That's a miracle that you are reborn. And yet we spend more time spinning our little uh, flutes, discerning the tastes of what? Earthly things? This gives us the baseline perspective that we need on the topic of power even. Is that verse on the board to me just screams power. None of that's possible by man. That's all God's good work. Amen? And it's incredibly powerful. And we get so familiar. That's the point. So that's the baseline perspective that the Spirit's been giving us on the topic of power. And we might reflect on Paul's words even in Romans 1.17, from faith to faith. All that's by God's power. From faith to faith. Any movement, any sanctification, God's power. This is what the Spirit's been saying to us. By grace they were prepared. That was God sanctifying the apostles to kickstart the early church. There's power in all of it, my friends. Up here on the board, as a friendly reminder, only God has the power to save man. When I say save in this context, I mean in every sense, deliver. Not just save him, but deliver him in every sense of the word. Save him. Deliver him. Only God has that power. Man does not save man, not himself nor others, by, quote, doing this or that. That's religion etc. That's what the flesh wants. That's how you feed the flesh. Tell the flesh it has the power. Man does not save man. It doesn't matter what man supposes or invents. In fact, up here on the board, the truth never changes just because a person denies it even. The past couple of weeks have been wrought with some discussion over um, religion in the area even, even this geographic location. The ways that uh, a certain religion has undermined the gospel itself and then led so many astray. And so many of them deny the truth. And it's, if you've looked at the, 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 almost said temperature, but the, um, the nature of the blogs lately, that's a battle that's being fought behind the scenes. Do you understand? That's a battle that the Spirit's using a different form of grace to your benefit to fight certain things behind the scenes. As we noted on Thursday, the moment we begin speculating about the holy God of the universe, we are cursed with the opposite of all the blessings he has designed for us to enjoy. In other words, if you want to lose um, the things that are meant to bring you joy in your life, 
Stop questioning the veracity of this, the truth. Stop plucking. That's how it starts, isn't it? Well, I kind of don't like that verse so much. So let me find a let me find some obscure or maybe mainstream even commentary that says, "Oh, this verse means this something totally different." This, you know, there's all kinds of teaching going on out there. Um that's undermining so much of what's being taught properly from pulpits like this, and it always starts with an attack on the Bible. Things like peace and contentment, character, hope, perseverance, even love. These are the great fatalities in the life of the doubter. Those are the great fatalities. Peace, contentment, character, hope, perseverance, and then the great one, love. What did the Bible says, I got this against you. You lost your first love. How do you lose sight of your first love? The F-bomb. You become familiar with them. Have you become so familiar that you literally, I'm not, you guys are laughing, but I know there are people right now that know this is true. They spend more time discerning what's in a flute. Is it the flute, right? Is that what they call them? The flute glass? What do you call them? What do you call those little, don't act, oh, don't worry. If you raise your hand, I already know who drinks in here. So, you know, what do you call those little things with a long stem? Nobody? No, no, there's a, there's a better name for it. You guys are such hicks. <laughs> I only use grogs or what do you call those things, those grog things? Anybody? Growl. I only use growlers. Thanks, there. Now we know. I only use, you know. I'm serious. Most people spend more time discerning things that have really nothing to do with what God's trying to do in terms of their sanctification than they do on relishing and giving gratitude for the one who saved them. And it's because of that. It's because of that very reason that misery seeps into their lives. Their relationships stink, first starting with God through Christ, because they've abandoned it, they've lost their first love. And then any relationship that's supposed to meet others, let's say like in a married situation, you're supposed to meet your spouse at Christ. If you've lost Christ's hand, where are you meeting then? The only other place to meet is at the flesh, right? And then no wonder why you're always fighting and need more of these growlers and these flutes, or whatever the heck they're called. I'm going to find out that word. People trying to drink away their pain and their sorrow. Why? Because they've gotten familiar with the Lord. And then their friendships stink. And then their workplace rots. And then everything goes down. And they wonder what the problem is. I keep telling you the same problem. It is, it's you. You're the problem. You, come, you become familiar with the Lord. And so there are fatalities in your life. The great one being love. As most of you already know, this week's blog was about the inerrancy of the Bible and that the kingdom of darkness wants to change your perspective on its veracity. Veracity just means the truth of it. To be open-minded, so to speak. 
I mean, how many people haven't heard the term? I remember when I was in industry, that was all I had to listen to. Oh, be open-minded. Think outside the box. And when you're talking about technical stuff, just whatever. It's great. Create new product or whatever. Fine. But it started to slip into, like, you know, with other people and other religions. I remember right before I left it, uh, I had to take some weird guru class I'm doing because my boss was Indian, like Indian proper, like Hindu or something like that. And I had to do, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like, what am I doing? He's trying to get me to like, what? Be open-minded about false religion? What am I doing? And that was for the sake of what? Peace in the workplace? I don't really care about peace in the workplace. I care about peace that I get from my Lord. So the word, you know, this world wants us to be, quote, open-minded, so to speak. And so I wrote a bit on that this, in this last week's blog titled, The Bible is God's Testimony. Do not be, quote, open-minded about your faith, my dear fellow believers. Know that Holy Scripture is just that, holy. Do not be deceived or pressured into thinking that you are inferior in your righteous posture about the inerrancy of the Bible and its divine author. Do not apologize for the fruit of your faith. In other words, the, 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 the world sort of browbeats you into submission. Well, you're, you know, you're this or you're that. Now you're a, a workplace pariah because you're not open-minded. You're like, hey, listen, this is what I believe. This is it. And see, so many people are like, this is what I believe but you can believe whatever you want, which is true. But that's where they start, you know, this whole ecumenical garbage comes in. I'm open-minded. And the next thing you know, you're saying, like walking so-called Christians do nowadays, oh, you know, all roads lead to one God. Can't we all just get along? That's being open-minded, right? That's what the world wants, be open-minded, Oh, but, you know, that religion, they're good people, and they're good people. And God would never sentence a good person to hell, right? Oh, they're good people. They're good. And next thing you know, you're right on board. Why? Because you're familiar with the Lord. You're familiar with what he said. He said, no one gets to the Father but through me. Did you forget? The fruit of your faith that I wrote about is your ability to bear witness with full confidence of the assurance of your faith. Go to Hebrews 10.19. So in other words, what the Spirit's saying is, when you understand the power of God, the inerrancy of the Word of God, do not apologize for it. Do not stand down. You're supposed to be a soldier for Christ. What kind of soldier are you if you put your weapon down? Which is the Word of God. Hebrews 10.19. The Bible says, put on the full armor of God. Why? So you can protect yourself from the evil one. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. That would be this morning, among other ways, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So don't just, don't, don't kowtow to the world. And, and always remember, too, that a church like this, a congregation like this, this is where you can be refueled. It's not the only way, but it certainly is a wonderful way to be refueled because it's tough out there. And nobody likes us anymore. See, it used to be people, you know, Christians, it, the, the, Christian's almost a swear word now. Jesus definitely is. Can't even talk about, you can talk about God, you know, as long as it's that ecumenical garbage God that everybody wants to talk about, little g. But you can't talk about Jesus. And I know some of you are still, you know, fully active in the workplace or in college or wherever you're doing. And it's hard out there and it's distracting. And even your so-called loved ones and your friends and your family, they don't help. They don't help. That's why Jesus said, I came to divide. I came to take a house and split it down the middle. I don't want you to be friends with the world. Why? Because they're not going to help me in my cause. I'm trying to sanctify you. Sanctify means set apart for my Father, for God. The world's trying to sanctify you for itself, set you apart for its purposes. And that's the great battle. It's a terrible thing to live life as a you know, so-called Christian in the absence of full assurance of one's faith. And that's a cruel proposition that God would never author. We talked about this this past week, living in fear, not freedom. It's an awful thing to think that the God who supposedly saves you isn't interested in giving you the assurance of such a thing. Yet that is precisely how most so-called Christians live. i got to be good enough to get to heaven. I have to have a part in my own salvation. No, you don't. The only part you have is make good decisions. When a temptation comes, say no. That's your part in it. Go read your Bible. You get tempted, Johnny on the spot? Some of you are going to go somewhere right after class and be tempted by other idiots. And you're going to have the opportunity to say no right on the spot. And maybe you have to go excuse yourself and go to the restroom and go say a prayer to be delivered in that moment. Nobody needs to even know. Most so-called Christians are living, I don't know, cockeyed? Outside of God's will for their life? If they're even saved? Familiar with the Lord? Here's what God offers. It's called true faith. Go to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrews 11.1. 1. As is the case always, it really comes down to faith. Where is your faith? Where do you place your faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Where do you place your hope? In our brief survey of false religions this past week, we concluded this up here on the board. 
more on this idea of miracles. Why does a religious, quote, Christian not understand the concept of being born again when it is something that Jesus said in John 3? The answer, easy. Human rationalism is not true faith. An unbelieving so-called Christian will never understand born again until they're saved. Why? Because spiritual things can't be appraised by an unregenerate person. That's a spiritual truth. I didn't say that. That's what the Bible says. So if you have a Christian friend or a family member even that says there's no such thing as being born again or I reject that, as a, you might need to start talking to them. Do you sure you understand what it means to be saved? Because you don't get saved at the end of your life unless you're the thief on the cross type. You get saved when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you get your salvation. But a lot of people, a lot of so-called Christians are living as if salvation comes at the end of their life and they're hoping and praying with fingers crossed that they get to go to heaven. Up here on the board, a religious unbelieving Christian does not possess the faith necessary that the Bible is the word of God. We entertained this false idea for a bit and concluded that one particular reason for a person who knows better, because Romans 1.20 says they are without excuse, is that by denouncing the authority of the Bible, the person doing so is able to, let's say, seize ultimate authority over themselves, the clay over the clay, instead of the potter over the clay. That's all it is. It's to usurp authority, because this is the grand authority. And if you can throw this out, then you can take that authority over. And it's not, a one, it's not always a black or white thing. You know, Christians do this all the time. They say, well, I don't like that scripture, but I like this one. So I'm going to throw that one out, and I'm going to keep this one. Uh-uh. It's all or nothing, baby. It's all or nothing. You don't get to choose which parts of the Bible are true for you and which aren't. This is what happens when clay becomes malcontent with the sculptor. Up here on the board, loosed from the sovereignty. A person who dismisses the Bible as the very word of God is then able to supplant God with themselves. What do you think they're trying to do? After all, if the Bible isn't God's word, then where can one find it? Existentialism? You know, I, God to me is who I say he is. Since the Bible's out, then who is God? You talk to most people, most Christians even, have some concept of God. And it's, I don't know, it's baffling? I sit there and say, where did you get that concept of God? Because it certainly is not in the Bible. That's not the God of the Bible. I don't know where you got him from. He's either unbelievably wrathful or unbelievably only like soft and cuddly and supposedly loving. Where did you get this God? Because that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is fierce and loving. The God of the Bible is Jesus Christ, who's described as the lion and the lamb. I don't know. It's unbelievable. People just make things up. Oh, I'm a Christian. I get the tag. And then I can just invent a God. Such is the very fabric of every errant religion ever conceived by man. Take the Bible out, you can make God, I guess, anything you want it to be. 
If you dig deep enough, what you often find is that the proponents of religion tend to follow their chosen religion because some portion of the Bible is offensive to them. They just don't like it. So they sign up for a religion that takes that part out or completely diminishes it or takes it out of context or, in some cases, dispensationalizes it away, creates another doctrine that hacks up the Bible and then pushes it away to the side and says, well, that's not for you anyways. Oh, there's all kinds of strategies that Satan uses. Trust me, I've studied many of them. It's heinous. It's all meant to degrade the Lord and His grace the true God. God is both love and wrath. Neither facet is present in His essence without the other. Only the human flesh is offended by the wrath of God. The new creature loves the wrath of God, even when it's upon themselves, even when they realize that this is something that has to happen. This is something that's a little bit ugly, not pretty, but it has to happen because God loves a person. Maybe it's you. God loves a person, especially his own, enough to discipline them because that's what he does. Part of sanctification, right? Don't you love that about God? Or do you want him to be a horrific parent like some people are and just say, I'm only going to give positive reinforcement, never negative? Oh, Johnny is such a good kid. Oh, Johnny is such a good kid. Then when he does something bad, the kid's like, you know, this tall. Now, Johnny, let's talk about this. The kid's like, Let's reason about this. What? What do you mean reason? Smack the kid in the butt. He'll understand that. (laughs) You see, only human flesh is offended by spare the rod, spoil the child. That's the human flesh. Oh, don't. You can't hit your kid. Oh, yes, you can, and you actually should. Because that's all they understand in the beginning. If you're not, you're ungodly. I didn't say that. That's the Bible. See, that's offensive to some people. I can even see some of you twitching a little bit. It's like, no, that's the Bible. What do you want me to say? You want me to lie to you? I'm not going to lie. Here's what I can tell you from Scripture, and you feel free to try to prove me wrong, because I know when you try to prove me wrong and you actually use the Bible, you're going to end up where I'm at. And you're going to realize, once you do the work, most of you are like, yeah, I would, but I still, I got, that's too much work. Real power is never lopsided. That's what real power is. That's why integrity is so important. Because it goes in both directions, you see. That's why you should relish it when you see it in a human being. A person who's willing to stand up to say, you know, I love you in one moment, and then uh, gird your loins the next. Real power is never lopsided. This is why the right way to think about Jesus Christ is as the lion and the lamb, not just one or the other. Given the fact that today's so-called Christianity is hell-bent on presenting a weak gospel and even a weak Savior, we tend to see this lopsidedness towards the exclusion of God's righteous wrath. In other words, for whatever reason, um, God's wrath is not in vogue today. Back, I think, 100 years ago, it was really in vogue. People went overboard maybe in the other direction. You know, like, But now it's all, you know, lovey-dovey God, and he's weak. And let's just water down his gospel to accommodate man 
let's just, you know, call redefine grace altogether so it doesn't include discipline. Let's take all the fundamental parts of what makes God sovereign and function in integrity out so that we can end up with some weak, pathetic, emasculated God with this scrawny, puny, pathetic, so-called Savior hanging like a noodle off the cross. This is what we want. And you know what that is called? Teshuka. Sin wants to dominate, lord over. Our greatest example, when a wimpy guy gets married to a lording woman, and the wimpy guy is literally a wet noodle. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. It's disgusting. It's the perfect example of sin over everyone. And sin trying to describe and illustrate Jesus Christ as weak and pathetic and incapable. Do you understand that? Are you getting the sense of Tashuka yet, ladies? Gentlemen? Are you getting it yet? That's how grotesque it is. It seems today's, quote, discerning Christian demands that God be less harsh than the Bible says He is. They demand that He portray Himself as benevolent only, I guess, in the area of positive reinforcement, and they demand that He essentially be emasculated, stripped of His absolute authority due discipline, as well as coddle. Because that's what love does. Whatever's appropriate for the situation, that's what love does. That's called integrity. You see, a weak person will never do both. They'll cling to one or the other. It's true. You're just as pathetically weak if you're pounding on people 24-7 and never actually expressing any form of love or care for them. That's weak, too. That's the, you know, the chest-beating moron. The truth is simple. God breaks hearts. What do I mean? We are so sympathetic to broken hearts. What do I mean? I mean that there's a lot of fleshes out there that are getting crushed, and it's good. There's a lot of, all right, how is the, how is the human heart made? It's made awful. It's deceitful. So says the Bible. It's wretched. So says the Bible. So don't you want that thing broken? Isn't it a good thing when that thing's broken and crumbled to pieces? So that at that point, God has a conversation with a person who's been brought low, down to their very depravity, and they can realize that the truth of the matter is that they need a Savior? Isn't that a good thing? God breaks hearts. That's a very good thing. But yet, we're so sympathetic to broken hearts. Oh, look at them. Oh, they're so pathetic. Oh, come here, sweetie. Come here. He's such a good boy. I think you missed a couple of blogs ago. He's such a good little girl. Not really. Not the way they were born. Maybe if they're born again, which doesn't happen when they're little. hate to say it, parents. I know every parent's like, oh, I want my kid to be born again when they're like six. Sorry. Don't understand depravity at that point. 
But we're so sympathetic to broken hearts, aren't we? That's part of the play. Don't you get it? He's playing you. Just consider the number of songs written about the topic. God has no problem breaking man's heart, for his heart is wretched by nature. The very best thing God can do for man is to break his heart. While at face value that sounds awful, it's actually quite gracious. I want God to break an unbeliever's heart. And if he wants to use me as an instrument, then so be it. If he wants to use you as an instrument, then so be it. You don't have to pound on someone to break their heart. You only have to give them the truth about themselves. You just have to be a waiter. This is what the Bible says. For some additional perspective on God-breaking hearts, a broken heart isn't always a bad thing. In fact, it's the first thing God does for an unbeliever in his salvation. It's the first, he has to do it. If you don't lose yourself, you can't get him. So said Jesus Christ. You have to deny yourself. How's that going to happen? If you're infatuated with yourself. If you like life the way it is as a sinner. How's that going to happen? If your heart's never been broken, so to speak. If we bring all this together, what we have is the starkness of the inerrant Bible, also known as the Word of God. Or as Paul referred to it, the Word of Life, up here on the board, Philippians 2.16, holding fast the Word of Life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. This is what we've learned about the word of life over the past few weeks. The word of God speaks often of its own power. And you know what? It doesn't apologize. You ever notice that? The word of God is in no way, no shade of apology whatsoever is ever seen in the Bible when it describes its own power. It's described always as absolute. Why? Because it is absolute. The Word of God speaks often of its own power and its abilities to sanctify whatever it is that God desires to set apart for His purposes. We ended on Thursday with the practical side of sanctification, a principle that has emerged in our studies several times now up here on the board. Anytime there's godly movement in our lives under the power of the Word, in the Spirit, we may rightly say that it is a part of our sanctification. For some of you, I said this on Thursday, for some of you, the very, you know, a year ago, given, I don't know what went on in your morning. I don't know what went on in your morning. But maybe a year ago, if you had the same dilemma that you had right before you went out the door this morning, if you weren't sanctified to the degree that you are now, you wouldn't have made it. You wouldn't have pushed through. I know some of you are here and you don't even want to be here because you're sick even. I mean, I got Scott Grande sitting in the back. Is, hey, is Anthony back there too? Oh, poor guy. He's totally out. You know, people, he's sick and he's here. Probably partially to bring Paula and second to encourage all of you. And people don't even think of any, you know, People don't think that way. And maybe who's to say, no offense, Scott, can't even defend himself, he's behind a door. Maybe five years ago he wouldn't have done it. He would have just stayed home. I don't know. It's possible. 
That's sanctification. Just the fact that you got here and you wouldn't have a year ago is sanctification. And that's how you have to look at yourself. And that's a gracious way to consider God's good work. And you'll find a lot of encouragement. Now, this is as far as we got last week. And uh, this is going to be new ground, so I'll slow down just a bit. About a couple of weeks ago now, um, I had run up upon this tail end of my notes. And we began to contemplate the book of James, but we never really finished. I think I alluded to it briefly, and then we were out of time. And we're still on this topic of power. A lot of people don't think of the book of James and then immediately think of power, but it's there. So firstly, let me say this. On the book of James, misinterpreting the book of James, it's, it's one of the, I would argue, in my opinion, probably one of the more misinterpreted books. A lot of so-called Christians misinterpret the book of James. Why? Because deep down they want to. Because you can twist James, the way that he spoke, if you don't understand the context of the word, you can twist it into religion and legalism and say, see, you've got to have this or else you're not even saved. And that's what the flesh wants, because then the flesh becomes a proponent or a, part, a component of salvation. The flesh loves religion, also known as human good works, to satisfy God's justice and righteousness. Why? Because the cross is foolishness to the flesh. The cross is foolishness to the flesh. It's too simple, it's too gracious, it's too something, and it's too um, exclusive because the flesh no longer has anything to do with salvation. If the cross is what Jesus Christ said it was, then the flesh has no play whatsoever. You are only to boast in the Lord. And the flesh is like, but I need to boast at least a little bit in me. Well, that's not the gospel. You know what about the cross, though? To we who believe, it is everything. It's everything. Amen? It's everything. So when a rightly related believer reads the book of James, here's what we can conclude. There's power there. What we see is not the power of man through his own faith. What we see is the Bible, or the power of God through the faith he has given us. The prior is legalism and religion, the latter is grace. That's what we see. When you read the book of James with the right context, with the right frame of mind, and with the right gospel even, then you see power. Go to James 1, 2. James 1, verse 2. See, if you twist it, you, you see the power of man come alive. If you read it with proper perspective, you see the power of God come alive. James 1, verse 2. <clears throat> now, this is about one of the most unworldly things you could ever read. I mean, the world will tell you you're crazy for thinking this way, Right? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Really? Really? The world will tell you you're crazy for thinking that way. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, 
and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sanctified, in other words. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But, as we've learned, he must ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord. Being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And that's how we began this morning. You want to be a double-minded, unstable person? Get familiar with the Lord. Drop his hand. Lose your first love. It's the quickest, easiest way to do it. And by the way, I represent the Lord. I'm an under-shepherd. Who's the great shepherd? He is. Who commissioned me then? He did. So you think when I speak and when I say something that you ought to listen? Do you think maybe, just maybe, you ought to listen? Maybe, just maybe, you should take all the grace that comes from this little church on a hill? Maybe, just maybe... I shouldn't have to remind grown-ups to read the blogs or be faithful. I mean, what is going on? I'm telling you what's going on. You're not listening, some of you. And we all go through bouts of it, right? So don't just go, oh, yeah, he's totally talking about so-and-so right over there. No, I'm talking about all of you. I'm talking about myself. Whenever I get miserable, it's because I've lost sight of the Lord. And you know how it starts? My litmus test is I read my Bible less. That's my litmus test. I'll sit in my little crying yeah, have my green tea. And then there's like two things in. No kidding. This is, I'm telling you the truth. You don't have to know this, but I'm going to tell you. There's my Kindle with the Bible on it, and then there's my iPad. And then my phone. So my Kindle has the Bible on it, and then there's the phone, which is the tether to the world, right? And I'm like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is what happens. And the boy, I'm like, come on, man. And then I'll choose the wrong one, and then my day stinks. And I'll choose it twice in a row. I know it happens to pastors too, right? I mean, I'll eventually I'll read my Bible or something or look up scripture or something. But the morning, you know what I'm saying? My routine, my morning routine, the thing that really matters to get your day going right, I choose wrong. And then if I do that more than like two days in a row, uh, I'm just, a cr I'm already kind of cranky, right? I'm even worse. That was a joke. Why is Tam hey, Tammy's going laughing. He was like, yep, it's true. It's true. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? then all of a sudden, I'm double-minded to some degree. I'm unstable. I lose my sense of balance. And life itself begins to become less joyful. Peace. My peace I give to you. No, thank you. I'll take my iPhone. No, thank you. I'll take my iPad. No, thank you. I'll swish along a little. It's a little too early to be drinking, but you know what I'm saying. Some of you should be reading your Bibles at night, but you're too tipsy to actually open it up. And then when you do, you're like... <laughs> How do I know all these things? I have no idea. 
but I'm teaching it, so some, someone in here does that. Goes to bed in a condition that the Bible would call probably dissipated. And they should be reading their Bible, they could be reading their Bible, they could be reading the blog, but they premeditated something else. Some other form of intoxication. It doesn't have to be drink. It could be you're intoxicated. You know, you get on your little iPad, now you're intoxicated with what? I don't know, fake, fake book? I don't know, texting? I don't know. What do, you, what do you guys do? Seriously, should I start asking people? What do you guys do at night, you sickos? A faith in the wrong object is not powerful at all. You start having faith in other forms of false grace in your life. Now there's no power to deliver you. Look at verse 9. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flower and grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And now you see the sort of shrinking, if you would, of the power source. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's real power, by the way. So that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. That is literally the, um, the summation of this morning's lesson. Right there, verse 21. Do you understand? If you drop his hand, you have no power. What do you, when you drop his hand, what do you do? You pick up filthiness. You become filthy. When you stop taking in the word of God, what is the word of God meant to do? Wash you daily. If you stop taking in the word of God, guess what? You stink. You're filthy. Your mind, your language, your actions, all of it, your relationships, they're all filthy. Why? Because you stopped, you got familiar with the Lord. You dropped his hand. You put aside him instead of what it, what does it just say in verse 27? Put aside the filthiness. That's a decision you can make. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted. What did I just say about my authority in your life? 
in humility, receive the word implanted. It is my job to feed you. Some of you, it's like the Grinch. Is that all you got? Nobody knows. It's like I feel like I'm jamming the word into your mouth. Or you're like a little kid. Oh, you want me to do it? You get the little airplane spoon. Open up. Coming in. I got to spoon feed you like a baby? Come on. That's what, I'm, that's what it feels like sometimes. Oh, here we go. That's how, when you guys showed up this morning, I'm like, oh, got to get the airplane spoon out. Because you guys are like in your little, you're like, nope. <laughs> Some of you are like, come on, man. I'm like twice your age. Stop it. No disrespect. But that's what it's like as a shepherd sometimes. And I know I'm the authority. And I know I've, given God's, I've been given this gift to feed you. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to feed you the truth. I want you to put aside all the filthiness. I want you to humbly receive the word implanted. That's what's able to save, deliver your souls. That has power. Without nourishment, you're powerless. You're emaciated. You don't have any strength. That's the whole point. You've got to eat. That's able to save your souls. God uses the word implanted not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. We've already, if you're saved, you've already been saved from the penalty of sin. But you know what? You still have to deal with the power of sin because you still have a flesh. Ultimately, from the very presence of sin. But as of now, the power of sin still exists. It's why you still sin. So God uses the word implanted not only to save us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin. He uses it not only to save us from damnation, but also from damage in this life. That's what he's trying to do. Stop sticking your finger in the light socket. Haven't you learned? Nope. Zzz. <laughs> yeah, it still hurts, doesn't it? It still hurts when you're stupid. <laughs> you guys did that in unison. That was pretty cool. Verse 21, again, Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves. You ready? Here's the call to action even. Doers of the word. Not merely hearers who delude themselves. A doer has power. When's the last time you ever tried to do something without any power? It doesn't work. Pick that up. Don't work. I got to pick it up. You know what I'm saying? This massive bicep just picked up that Bible. (laughs) There's got to be power. Right? Right? We already saw, basically, human power is impotent. No, it, it can't do anything. It's dead. Dead things don't animate. It'll lie to you, and you'll do ungodly things, but as, in terms of good things, doing anything good, you need his power. Prove yourselves, doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in the mirror, For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, 
and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. Remember, you're free, free to think well, free to do correctly, not free. Do not take the opportunity and make it an opportunity for the flesh, as says the word. This man will be blessed. You see, I started class with this. This person, this man will be blessed in what he does. Look at, uh, go to James 2.14. Jump forward a little bit. James 2.14. And this is the one where the religious people go crazy. What is it? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? If it's, in other words, if it's impotent. If that person's faith is impotent. There's no work because there's no power. We already decided to be able to do work, to do anything, there has to be a power source. So if you have no works, and I'm not talking about doing works under the wrong, you know what I'm saying. If there's no work, then can you possibly say that you actually have any real faith? No, because Jesus Christ said a tree after his own, a tree will bear fruit after its own kind. It doesn't bear fruit after a good tree, good fruit, a bad tree, bad fruit. That's the parable of the soils even. Do you understand? What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Sounds like the right thing to say, doesn't it? Sounds like when someone's like, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. It's like almost like a, a departing, sal- I don't know, what's, what's the opposite of a salutation? What do you call that? Nah, you guys are a big help this morning. <laughs> right? When you, when you uh, depart from somebody, it's almost like, okay, I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you. Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. Sounds kind of cool, right? Go in peace. Might as well be saying namaste, you yoga freaks. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? In other words, you're a windbag. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is what? Say it. I didn't hear that. That sounded like that Bud Light Frog commercial. Remember that? That's what it sounded like. You guys are sad. This is a sad morning at North Christian Church in terms of energy. I don't know what happened. Something sapped all your energy. Even so, if it has no worth, it's dead. Be confident in that. It's dead. Being by itself. Yeah. If it has no works, it's dead. That's why I have no problem teaching that true believers have works. That there's no such thing as a believer, ever, that doesn't have some kind of works in their life. There's no such thing. I know other people teach that, but it's complete garbage. There's no such thing. Otherwise, God himself is impotent. And so is his grace. And so is the new creature. And so is the word of God. And so is God the Holy Spirit. I guess all these power sources are impotent. Could you be more offensive to the holy God of the universe? Could you be more offensive? To say that he has saved somebody and then they become completely and remain completely impotent? Could you be more offensive towards the power of God? I don't think so. And James cuts right to the chase. Even so, if faith has no works, is dead. Kaput. Dead. 
being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You get the point. Again, we've been talking a lot about power lately. So I hope you see that it is an integral part of James's first two chapters. Again, up here on the board. What we see is not the power of man through his own faith. What we see is the power of God through the faith he has given us. The prior is legalism, religion. The latter is grace. And again, a faith in the wrong object is not powerful at all. Now let me just quickly go. We're almost out of time. so This has been our working framework. At some point, we're going to finish this thing, right? But this has been our working framework. We're on that last bullet. We went through, what do the apostles lack? Understanding, humility, faith, commitment, and our power. As we learned in great detail, the Word of God is omnipotent. That means it is all-powerful. However, as we've seen in Holy Scripture, the other power source in our lives is the Holy Spirit. So there's a, there is a concept in the Bible. It's not a light switch concept. I spent almost two years teaching against that horrendous false doctrine. It's not a light switch. There is such a thing as the influence or the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Go to John 20, 22. We know that as believers we receive Him. So we have the Word implanted, but we also have God the Holy Spirit. In other words, there are two unique power sources available to us as believers. The Word and the Spirit. The Word and the Spirit for sanctification in time. We just talked about that. It's not we're relieved of the penalty of sin, but the power of sin is still in our lives. And so we have the omnipotent Word of God and we have the omnipotent Holy Spirit to defeat these things. John 20, 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So we know that as believers, we, we receive said power source. When we receive the Spirit, we receive power, with the caveat that we must be, quote, filled in order to not to quench him, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. In other words, we can say no to his influence. We can say no to his prodding. We can say no to his prodding in our good conscience. What, what does that mean? We sin. To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, what? Sin. Guess who's right there going, uh, this is a bad idea. Just saying, this is a bad idea. And you know it because you have this in your soul, and you know it is a bad idea, and he's knocking the whole time. And you're like, nope, and then you give birth to sin. That's how it goes. When we receive the Spirit, we receive power. And as we've learned in the past, again, the filling of the Spirit is not like a light switch that turns on and off through some protocol. Filling implies influence over. That's what it means to be filled. What we need to focus on is that His power is always available. There's not some light switch you've got to flick. God forbid. God the Holy Spirit does not disappear for a time because you sinned. He's knocking, saying, would you confess it with me? Would you understand what you just did? Let's get to the bottom of this thing so we can move on. So his power source is always available. And he's always knocking on our door. He's always there prodding us, encouraging us, empowering us even. 
to be doers of the word, not merely hearers. He doesn't like phonies. God, the Holy Spirit, says, no, 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 no. Why do you think, if there's anything about this congregation or this ministry, it's very practical, isn't it? He never lets us off the hook. He gives us a doctrine, right, something to focus on, and then he says, not so fast. Swirl a few wine glasses. Let's talk practical stuff. Let's talk about what you might do after the class today. Ooh, I don't like this place. That's why this place isn't stock full, because nobody likes it, because the truth hurts. That's why. You all at least have enough courage. You're like the apostles, right? You may not have all courage, you may not have all faith, but you got enough to be here and hold your chin up, knowing that God has propped you up, even able to be here this morning. Amen? Amen. His power is always available to us. You have to realize that. However, through temptation and sin, we can quench or extinguish our laboring with Him to some degree. I mean, who, who in here wants to say that they're um, perfect in every sense, every part of their walk, or imperfect in every part of their walk? Neither is true. We're all on some continuum. Some of us are really good, quote-unquote, in a godly sense. In certain parts of our lives, we don't struggle in those areas. But we're, if people knew how horrible we were in this other area, they'd be shocked. Right? We're really good here, but we're literally like the worst kid on the block over here. And then the other kid on the block is really good over here, and they're like really bad over here. What do you think the Holy Spirit's saying in both of those situations? He's saying to one person, good job, keep this up. <coughs> no, this is no good. And then it's the flip. It's not an all or nothing, in other words. And that's why we have to use our own form of introspection. We have to tap the Word. We have to tap God the Holy Spirit. We have to listen to our good conscience in the process. That's why I could never, people ask me, sometimes they ask me questions, I'm like, I don't, I, my only answer is pray. I can't tell you what to do in this situation. I really can't. I know what I would do, but if I tell you what I would do, that's probably what you're going to do because you respect me, maybe. But I don't want you to do what I would do. I want you to do what you should do. So you need to pray to, the, to God and let the Holy Spirit guide you because His power is no more powerful in my life than it is in yours. I mean, we're not talking about areas of discernment. You know what I'm saying. In your life. When we say no or quench the Spirit in our lives, it's, it's sort of like, for us, for believers, it's like falling down and when someone reaches out a hand to help you up, you say, no, thank you. And you get up under your own power, or attempt to anyways. We say, no. I'll take this from here. Again, a saved person receives the Holy Spirit as a power source. Go quickly to Acts 1.8, and then I'll close. Acts 1, verse 8. Frank, Betty, it's a pleasure having you here. I know it's a it's not easy. Take your time. Acts one eight 
but you will receive power. I didn't say that. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's not Pastor Ed. That's real power. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Let me leave you with some big picture wisdom before I blow up here. Big picture. Okay, everybody just sort of go, big picture. We're left on earth after we're saved to spread the gospel, right? If you haven't figured that out, you need to go back a couple of years and start over. It's why we call it the Great Commission. It's why you're still here. I know, you know, you think it's about your kids or your grandkids and it's so wonderful. I'm not saying that these things aren't good, but the reality is that that's why you're really here. To spread the gospel, to live it. I mean, that's our purpose. As a recent blog stated, we are here to glorify God in time. So, what we really need is power to serve the Lord this way, in this great commission of ours. Look at the big picture. Why does he give us the word? Why does he inspire it? Why has he inspired this? And then why does he give us the spirit? Why does he give us these two magnificent power sources? Why? So we can fulfill his purposes, not our own. He didn't set us free so we could go chase after fleshly things. He didn't do that. So you could slam mugs together at a pub and act like an idiot. That's not a doer of the word. Do you understand what I'm getting at? I'm not being legalistic at all. That's what we just talked about with James. That's not legalistic at all. That's real. That's what a real Christian thinks like. I'm not saying that's me. I'm not saying I'm a real Christian. You know what I mean? According to the word. But we need power. We can't do that. We can't do that. If you've ever been an addict, you know the only way you're ever going to get out of that pit is through God, by the grace of God. You're not going to get out of it otherwise. You can't deliver yourself. I know there's self-help books and this thing and that thing and this program and that program. They're all Chinese food. You're starving and half an hour later and you're right back to it. You need the word of God, especially as a believer, to be delivered because you don't have the power to do that thing. And then the grandest thing of all, the great drawer of all, is the gospel itself. The fact that you have been privileged. Just think about that. He could have taken you home. He has taken some of us home. He could have taken you home and said, you know what, it's it's all good. No, he says, you know what, I'm going to take you. You, Can you believe this? Just check this out. I'm going to take you, and you know you, and you know where you came from. And I'm going to let you spread my precious gospel. <laughs> it's like giving a rug rat, if that even exists, I don't even know what that is, right? It's like giving a rug rat, I don't know, what, the, uh, the, the Hope Diamond? Go give this to as many people as you can. Just come back, we'll g- I'll give you another one. I mean, what the, are you serious? Are you serious? And then some will say, Hope Diamond, this thing's worth billions. I'm going to go cash it in and go live my life. Well, that's the temptation. No, we need, we need power. God has given us all these, this power, the Word, the Spirit, the whole of it. 
for His good purposes. You get it? To bring glory to Him. This is not about us. It's about Him. It's why when we have our perspective right in heaven, we're going to, whatever rewards we might have gained in His honor, we're going to want to throw them at His feet. We're not going to prance around with them like someone in the world would do. Na, 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 na. I have three, you have two. No. That's not godly at all. This is about bringing glory to Him. He blesses you out, He gets glorified. He saves you, He gets glorified. He sanctifies you, He gets glorified. That's the Word of God. That's what it means to live the gospel reality. Amen? That's bards. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to fellowship together, to break bread together, to experience even in time the very power of the Word and Your Spirit. Father, we just pray for those that are still struggling, that are just lost, that whatever it takes, Father, and use us, Father, as vessels, we pray for the honor of doing so, to bring the gospel of your beloved Son out to these people so that they might be saved and delivered for all of eternity. Father, what a privilege that would be. Your will be done, of course. We just ask for traveling mercies on those here this morning as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.